from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. From the polar plunge to more snow, livestock producers are bearing the cold. We had actual temperature of 45 below, which was a record uh, here in Dillon, Montana. From cattle markets to winter wheat, we'll look at the impact on ag. More of those $20,000 per acre farmland sales coming in. The value of farmland just seems to be on fire. It is just remarkable how stable this, this uh, uh, market conditions have been. Look at those prices be setting up to fall. The new warning signs experts are watching. Plus, a major ag equipment company is teaming up with the world's largest satellite constellation. Could it change the game for farmers? That and more coming up. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news. It was a week of snow and extreme cold in many parts of the country, with cattle and cattle production caught up in the storms. Cattle are seeing some impacts on performance, and producers say longer term it will show up in weight and grading losses with more of the same weather in the extended forecast. Plus, there have been marketing disruptions. I would say the major impact is when you look at logistics. So many, many auction markets were, were closed the latter part of last week. We've heard some closures at the beginning of this week. Tyson Foods on Tuesday announcing it was temporarily scaling back meatpacking operations at some U.S. facilities due to the winter blast. It said it was working to fulfill customer orders at other locations. Plus, some port plants limited operations when USDA inspectors could not make it to work. Nebraska Congressman Mike Flood sent a letter to U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack after receiving reports of USDA inspectors failing to show up Monday at Tyson's pork production plant in Madison. The continental cold snap has agronomists worried about the winter wheat crop, although it's still too early to know how much winter kill occurred. As you can see, temperatures were anywhere from 5 to nearly 50 below zero, and it occurred January 12th and the 16th. Winter wheat can survive these bitterly cold temperatures if insulated by at least a couple inches of snow. However, in places like Montana, there was very little snow cover leading into the cold snap, and that's causing concerns about the crop in portions of the northern plains. Temperatures plummeting into the minus 30 to minus 50 degree range. There is certainly some concern for winter kill for that wheat, especially coming off a record warm December. Rippey says the number one production state of Kansas, there was good snow cover to blanket the crop there. That should have helped protect it. And the moisture will also improve conditions as the state warms up in the weeks ahead. The record cold weather this week couldn't freeze the enthusiasm Iowa Republicans have for former President Donald Trump. Mr. Trump topping 50% of the vote in Iowa caucus, cementing his position as front runner in the Republican race for president. But the margin between second and third place, that was tight. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis outpacing former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley by a slim margin. New Hampshire first primary is next Tuesday, a week from now. Uh, New Hampshire is different than Iowa. They have more independents. They're less homogenous. Uh, you could, I think they'll have more crossovers. I think some more Democrats may come over to vote uh, for a Republican. But it's going to be Nikki Haley's probably only 
uh, chance remaining to make this a two-person race. She either has to win it or come very close to Trump, who's currently ahead in the polls, I think, by five to six percentage points in New Hampshire. Arizona could soon ban lab-grown meat. Two bills have been introduced by two state Republican lawmakers. One would prohibit the sale or production of any cell cultured animal product for human or animal consumption. Another would put restrictions on how meat alternatives and cell cultured meats are represented and labeled. A similar measure was introduced a couple months ago in Florida. So far, the FDA has approved two companies to sell lab-grown meat using cultivated cells. They are upside foods and good meat. Italy became the first country to ban the sale of lab-grown meat late last year. John Deere is joining forces with SpaceX. The agreement will provide the Starlink network service to farmers. Deere says the satellite communication system would allow farmers facing rural connectivity challenges to fully leverage precision ag technologies. To activate, John Deere dealers will install a Starlink terminal on compatible machines, along with a modem to connect the machine to the John Deere Operations Center. It will be available in the second half of this year. More cold, more snow. Winter's late arrival is making a splash. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The H&S Top Shot Manure Spreader is available in five models from 1,300 to 4,200 gallons. Plus, it qualifies for special 3.9% financing through January 31st. Contact your H&S dealer right away for more info. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Martin Lauramore joining us with that. From the record cold, the record amounts of snow and rain in places, there were close to 300 records broken across the country one day earlier this week. But Martin, do you see a break in this pattern anytime soon? Yeah, that pattern looking to finally break across a lot of the U.S., especially as we get into our mid to late week of this week. So here's what we're looking at when it comes to that temperature outlook over the next six to 10 days or so, getting these temperatures way above average. Finally going to be breaking a lot of not records, but getting above that freezing marker for a lot of us going to get a lot of that snow starting to melt off across much of the U.S. It's currently seeing a lot of that snowfall. So we'll be enjoying as we see those temperatures. The mercury is slowly creeping upwards over the next couple of days. Again, for a lot of us, Finally getting out of that freezing. So jet stream as of the next couple of days is going to be our Sunday. Noticing this ridge really building in across the central U.S. This is going to be helping warm up a lot of the places that have seen snow. They don't usually see a lot of that snow out toward Oklahoma, Arkansas. You saw quite a bit of that snow starting places up to Kansas and uh, Missouri, places that don't really see a lot of it, but saw several inches of snow. They're going to start melting that as we get into this week. And this ridge continuing to build into the eastern U.S. So again, a lot of these places out toward the Appalachians and down toward the eastern seaboard be watching a lot of those temperatures creeping upwards over the next couple of days this is going to be on your Monday, but noticing bit of a trough building in across the western US. This right here is going to be causing some pretty unsettled weather for about the uh, western half of the US probably going to be sitting at the Rockies moving westward could see those higher elevations, more of that snow, lower elevations out toward uh, the other side of the Rockies be looking at again just that rain still moving through. So this trough right here is going to slowly make its way across and will bring in some decent rain rainfall across the southerly portion of the U.S., which, you know, hasn't seen a ton of rain, but 
See, you saw a good little bit of that snow, so it'll be a welcome sight to see a little bit of winter rain over the next couple of days. This will continue to move across the entirety of the U.S., bringing in some of that more rain across the southeastern U.S., and also maybe giving a brief cool down into our next weekend for some parts of the Great Lakes. So not exactly a welcome sight, but you know, temperatures nowhere near as cold as they have been this past couple of days. So rainfall as we go through the next several days, watching as we really see the western U.S. starting to pick up a couple more inches of that snowfall and also the rainfall, depending on the elevation. But like I said, watching the southern U.S. really picking up a good amount of that rain as we head into that next part of our work weekend and next week. Again, this will be late for that January. Again, some parts of the uh, Pacific Northwest picking up a good amount of snow. So overall, looking much better as we head in the next couple of weeks. And of course, overall temperatures getting much warmer as we crawl out of winter. Thanks, Martin. Well, we've been keeping a close eye, not only weather here at home, but also weather in Brazil. But it hasn't been enough to move the markets. We will tell you why. We have Naomi Bloom and John Payne joining us next. Welcome back. Our marketing roundtables this week. Naomi Bloom as well as John Payne joining us. Naomi, just I don't know, even know any other way to describe it, but it is some ugly price action happening in soybeans. What is pressuring prices so much right now? Well, it was just the fact that the USDA on that report uh, raised U.S. ending stocks, and they didn't really adjust that Brazilian crop number as low as what the market was hoping. So that propelled prices to go down to some major support levels, however. So on the front month March contract, $12 is big support uh, going back almost to last summer. We filled a gap on the chart, and it was the downside swing objective target. I think the market right now trying to find some good support at this $12 area uh, but going forward, the question then continues to be, where is that Brazil crop or where isn't it? A lot of the industry not believing the USDA number of that 157, with some people in Brazil saying it's as low as 137. So that's going to be what the market's talking about in the coming days and weeks, and the reason why we could potentially get some kind of a price rebound higher into February. Now, John, as Naomi mentioned, I mean, there's a wide range of estimates out there right now. Some private estimates projecting the lowest soybean yield in Brazil in 15 years. One of those estimates coming from Earth Daily Agro out of Canada. And then consulting firm AgRule out of Brazil also cutting soybean crop production forecasts. So, you know, where does Hedgepoint Global set right now? And really, do we have a pulse on this crop yet? Well, you know, we're sitting somewhere in the Midwest 50s. Yeah, I think that, you know, between 150 and 160 is obviously where the USDA wants to be in the short run. I don't know if I buy being much below that, but I don't think it really matters in the short term. You know, we've got two problems with soybeans. One, you've got supply available right now in Brazil, and it's, we'll call it almost $60, $70 a metric ton cheaper. Um, so that's almost $2 cheaper than, than it's being offered in, in the United States on the ports. The second thing is you have a U.S. crusher here that's bidding up U.S. supply. So that's keeping exports from moving to China. Uh, not to mention the, the relations politically. So I think short term here, you have kind of a harvest market where you see in supply. Uh, crush in Brazil isn't great. Crush in Argentina isn't fantastic. And the product markets that essentially rely on moving to China, China's a train wreck. So um, I think that's that's kind of the recipe we have here. I don't know if we see much, you know, much lower than 1150. Um, I think the U.S. producer will have to kind of throw on the towel to a degree on acreage to get the market to go back to where it was. But at this point, I think it relies on the product markets. If we can't see bean oil trade north of 50, 60 cents next year, I don't think those highs that we saw last year are going to be tested. Is it just yield or is it also quality issues that we're watching? 
Well, that is something to be monitoring. There are some people who are saying that the pods are aborting in the fields. And so there's there's some significant issues that are potentially going to be coming that we won't know about yet for the short term. But the USDA on the February USDA report is when they're going to acknowledge the situation a little bit more. That's traditionally, if they're going to acknowledge something in South America, that's the report that they'll do it on. Um, now, again, looking back here at our country, something to be aware of. Yeah, the USDA raised yield on this last USDA report, but they did not adjust demand for crush. Our crush numbers here are still going fantastic. And if all these crush plants can come online, that's new demand that needs to be acknowledged on upcoming USDA reports. And so maybe with what the USDA did by raising yield, it's going to allow them to increase demand for the crush in the coming reports and then ending stocks for old crop start to go back down. John, do you think cotton will be more competitive? I mean, you look at cotton in Brazil, it's still rated favorably at this point. You yeah. saw adjustments in the latest USDA report on cotton as well. Yeah, they're going to. So the shifting that's going on, a lot of folks that in the Sabrina corn markets took it to cotton. So I think USDA admitted that a little bit. Um, as far as cotton in the U.S., I would imagine we see it planted. It might be more next year, the following crop year that, I, that we're discussing. Uh, you know, the worry I have on on really the southern acres is where do they put their supply in the short run? You know, they're going to be the first ones to harvest. And if that Chinese bid isn't there, you know, the crushers can support up north. But down south, you know, you have a huge inversion in the market. I think we're 38 cents August to to, uh, to November right now. And that would be the one I look to, to that could really fade or fall apart uh, as the summer prop. Uh, you know, harvest would happen. But at this point, you know, we're so far away. I think, you know, everything we're discussing right now is is known, uh, you know, to chase headlines in this kind of world has really not been long-term profitable. So I think if you're sitting on supply, you got you to be patient here. Well, switching over to livestock, estimated cattle slaughter did improve this week. We'll tell you by how much and the impact on the market. We'll do that with Naomi and John right after the break. Welcome back, Naomi Bloom, as well as John Payne rejoining us. All right, before we switch gears to livestock, we did not touch on corn in Brazil. Watching closely, uh, you know, the planting pace and, and possibility of the Safrina corn crop there. Have we seen any adjustments from private estimates on, on corn, Naomi? Well, we've seen the numbers come down just a little bit. And the USDA already did acknowledge that the first crop corn in Brazil is not great. Now, remember, that's only 25% of their total expected production. And the USDA has brought that number down. We're trading right now near 127 million metric tons. Last year, Brazil grew 137 million metric ton crop. The thing to remember, as we know, Safrina is the 75% of their total production. But their demand is expected to be closer to 131.5 million metric tons between what they need for domestic use and export. And they're already saying production is going to be at 127. So it's not going to meet demand. So if there are weather issues with the Safrina crop, the market has not yet traded it. The market will be free to trade it. And it might be some good news for U.S. farmers. We might see an uptick in exports because, again, that Safrina crop is what the world relies on in August and September when the U.S. corn crop isn't quite, re quite yet ready. So I want to really be watching that Safrina corn crop and the weather down in Brazil. John, you think none of that is priced into the market at this point? No, not given where the funds are. I think at this point, which she, she's, you got to pay attention to it. I think the the problem with it on a rally would be they're going to buy from Argentina. Uh, you know, Argentina's got supply now, and they're going to be able to, to supply anything Brazil doesn't need. Um, and then also China. You know, I think a big part of their demand productions are priced into what's going to China. Can China buy from Ukraine? Can they buy it elsewhere? I think at this point, you know, for us, the, U the United States, we're going to have to figure out a way to use supply 
and you know within our industries to to get out of this. I don't think exports are going to be it. So at this point, that is happening. You know, we got massive crush margins here on the uh, on the hogs, and you know, cattle feeding margins have, have gotten better. Although feeders a little high relative to the live, um, but all those things are bullish and in, in, you know supported for price over the long run. The problem is the carry. You know, the carry could just kind of melt away as we go. Naomi, estimated cattle slaughter improved this week to 118,000 head. That was on Wednesday, still below the 30, or still below, uh, well below last year. Also, the week-to-date total, that was up from last week, but still behind last year. When you look at these trends right now, is it all weather-related? In the short term, it has been. Um, I think also what the market is doing is a little bit of a technical buying spree ahead of the cattle on feed report. And then also with the big um, annual production report on January 31st, the market is having a recovery bounce. Uh, so when we get these reports, when we see what the numbers say, we'll either have a reason and a justification to have a true 50% correction rally higher and see front month cattle futures get back up near 180, um, or, or it's going to be a reason to see the market sell off. So there's a lot of important information coming out for the cattle market in the very short term. And of course, yes, keeping an eye on production numbers, keeping an eye on where our domestic demand lies, along with our exports as well. Um, but one thing I would caution is that whatever kind of a recovery bounce and rally we see from here, I feel like it's going to be an opportunity for producers to be doing some hedging. I kind of feel like those bigger prices that we had are still in the past. But if we can get the recovery rally here, take advantage of it. Yeah, and we're having this discussion actually before the cattle on feed report came out this week. But when you look at that inventory report coming up at the end of the month, John, you think that could be a, a big bullish report? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, that's that's the story, especially in the feeder markets. You know, from what I hear, four-way calves, five-way calves, I mean, they're they're not limit bid, but there is strong, strong demand for replacements. You got weather that's better in Texas, got rains on the way. I would imagine that wheat pasture is going to be as full as it can. Uh, the problem is going to be the numbers. And at this point, the cow-calf guys I know, have not increased supply. It's been too expensive. So I think you're going to need to see more. Um, and as far as the, the live goes, we got to see the beef stay high. If the beef can stay high, I think live can do well. All right. Thank you both for joining us. We need to take a quick break. And then Tractor Tales is next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we got a classic Oliver 1950 that was rescued from the junkyard. Behind us we have a 1965 Oliver 1950 that's been modified as a pulling tractor. The tractor originally came from a town in Kentucky, from uh, Adairville. We originally built it back in 2003. We used to run a turbo on it, then we switched it back to a natural aspirated engine like it was and run this new class that we're running with it now. Well, me and my brother, we both saved up our money and uh, we wanted to build a pulling tractor. My dad thought this would be a good start for us, so we put our money together and went and bought a 1950 Oliver because my grandpa actually bought one of these things back in 1970 and he still has it and farms with it today and that's where basically our love for 1950 Olivers came from with the Detroit Motors because of him. And we had to do a complete total engine overhaul on it. All We had to do work on the sheet metal, uh, some transmission work. I mean, it was, in, it was in real bad shape. We've been pulling it, like I said, since 2003. We probably average roughly 20 hooks a year with it. So it's been down the track several times. Actually, me and my brother just won the uh, 2018 points championship with the pulling organization we run with, KITPA, down here in Kentucky in our class. So Detroit Diesel had their uh, 80th anniversary last year, and they 
invited us to bring the tractor up and actually display it for their 80th anniversary at the Detroit Diesel Plant in Detroit, Michigan. So that was a pretty neat thing. It was like a little vintage vehicle show. But other than that, I mean, it's, we just use it for pulling, you know, pulling competitions. The class we run, it's a 7,000 pounds. It's a 410 cubic inch limit on the engines. But like I said, these Detroits are 212, so we're way under the cube limit. Uh, naturally aspirated, you can't have a turbocharger. It's fun to drive and the crowd at the pools likes it. It's a crowd favorite. Thanks, Greg. Well, farmland values have been on fire, but there are some warning signs starting to pop up that things could be set to change. So will we see farmland prices fall in 2024? That's our Farm Journal report next. You're watching U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Farmland values have been on fire despite mounting factors that some thought would pressure those values, forcing them to fall, like commodity prices and interest rates. But as we turn the page to 2024, is a correction in farmland set to take place? And if so, how much could farmland values even fall? That's this weekend's Farm Journal report. From the $34,800 per acre land sale in Missouri that smashed records last fall, to the Sioux County, Iowa farm ground selling for more than $22,000 to start the year. It's proof the strength in the farmland market hasn't fizzled out. Well, the key point, without a doubt, is resiliency. Paul Shattig is senior vice president of real estate for Farmers National Company. A new land report from the company shows even with declining commodity prices and elevated interest rates, farmland values are holding higher than expected. And we really haven't seen uh, in no decreases to speak of, and still some really strong sales out there in the country. Jim Rotherich is a farmland appraiser in Iowa and also watches the farmland market closely. It is just remarkable how stable this, this uh, uh, market conditions have been. Rotherich tracks land auctions across Iowa, inputting prices and analyzing data for land sales across the state. Based on my data, my auction data, which is factual information, uh, we're down 1% from this, from uh, last year. And I just think that's amazing that, that it held up that well. Rotherich says according to his analysis of farmland sales in Iowa between January 1st and January 30th last year, there were only two sales that topped $20,000 per acre. But from July 1st through the end of 2023, there were seven sales north of $20,000 per acre in the state. We had a post-harvest bump. I think the drought was affecting uh, market conditions uh, early on in the year. People were hesitant to, to push those prices. And when it got out there in the combine, they realized they had a better crop than they expected. And it showed up at odd auction needs. Shedig says Iowa's farmland market has been the strongest, but there are now other states bringing in eye-popping sales. You know, going in Indiana have kind of picked up a little steam and a lot of the sales that we're seeing out there uh, are quite strong, you know, in the $20,000 plus range. Rotherich says he combs through 130 auction websites every three months, and recently he's uncovered one change. One thing I noticed is the number of price reductions on the listings his companies had. I hadn't seen that before. So the market is being affected by high interest rates. He's also noticed an uptick in no sales in auctions. Yet cash rent auction data that continues to flow in shows surprising strength. Some of the cash rent auction data I've got, it's just incredibly strong. It's, there's just no weakness at all in cash rent auction data. 
So, you know, some of those are three-year terms. So it doesn't seem that that, that we're, we're going to have that bigger correction. Both Rothermit and Shattuck say farmers are still in the driver's seat and in the majority of farmland sales today. And over the past several years, uh, you know, when this land market really took off, the the primary pool of buyers are those um, operating farmers. And they continue to be the successful buyer of land. But there are still some of those investor types that, that are out, out there. They're still out there looking to buy land. There's still a lot of demand to buy land. Still a lot. But unlike the headlines and political push to ban foreign-owned farmland, the one group they're not seen by farmland is foreign investors. I talked to all auctioneers all over Iowa, and I don't know of any foreign investor buying farm ground in Iowa. It's the local competition that's buying most of this farm ground. Um, I don't. I don't know of any. I, I know of zero uh, foreign buyers in Iowa. As farmland values remain a focus in 2024, now the question is just how much of a correction could the farmland market see this year? If we look back across the last 25 years, we've seen some run-up in land values, and then it resets at a new, a new normal. And I think that we're we're going to see that here, where I, I think in this in the next uh, 12 to 20, 24 months, we're probably going to see things kind of the land values reset at a at kind of a new level. The last time we had a run-up. Uh, in 2013, 2014, the market, you know, went down 20 to 25 percent. It just doesn't seem like it's going to do it this time. Instead, Rutherich thinks farmland values could be setting up for a correction in the single digits. When we look at from the buyer's standpoint, there are a lot of farm operators who are our biggest pool of buyers. And there are, are many of them that are have set themselves up to uh, expand and be able to, uh, to handle a land purchase. And we have many sellers that are looking at their their land right now and deciding that it's never been worth more than than it is today. Whether farmland prices lose footing, level out, or continue to find surprising strength, both Rothermitch and Shattig say buyer interest remains high. Now, I also spoke to Mike Walston, who writes for Pro Farmers Landowner Newsletter. He says he thinks the best case scenario is farmland prices hold steady this year. That's on better quality ground. He says poorer quality farmland will likely be weaker. Now, the more likely scenario, in his opinion, is a 5% decrease in farmland values, and that would continue going into 2025 through 2027. He says it's very possible the land market will see a 10 to 15% correction over that time. But if energy prices go crazy again, that could be more like 20%. Well, from attacks in the Red Sea to more protests in Germany, we'll have a look at ag around the world next. Now for your headlines for agriculture around the world. Attacks in the Red Sea have now reached a point of crisis as U.S. missiles strikes back at Yemen-based militants behind the attacks of ships. Many carriers are avoiding the area now. And for the first time, a ship carrying livestock was forced to reroute, adding anywhere from 10 to 14 days onto normal travel time. Just this week, U.S. launched its fourth rounds of strikes on Houthis in Yemen after Iranian-backed Houthi rebel drones struck a bulk carrier ship in the Gulf of Aden. The targeted strikes underscore escalating tensions in the region. As a result, the Red Sea is nearly closed off to travel for container ships, which is one of the main travel routes. The ripple effect is having consequences on the global economy. 
An update to a story that we first told you about last week. Farmers across Germany continue to protest tax increases, and the country's finance minister told farmers this week there's no more money for further subsidies. Farmers have been blockading roads, bringing Berlin virtually to a halt. The farmers are protesting the government's plan to phase out a tax break on agricultural diesel. Government officials say it's all to help balance the 2024 budget after a constitutional court ruling in November forced the government to revise its spending plans. This week, they're in a protest that drew thousands of farmers in Berlin. Germany's finance minister said, quote, I can't promise you more state aid from the federal budget, but we can fight together for you to enjoy more freedom and respect for your work, end quote. Farmers are also speaking out against what they call burdensome rules and regulations. China's birth rates fell to a record low as the country's population dropped for a second consecutive year. Now it's bringing up more concerns about the strength of China's economy. Record low birth rates as well as the strict COVID-19 lockdowns and COVID deaths have accelerated a downturn in China's population. The National Bureau of Statistics says the total number of people in China dropped by more than 2 million to 1.4 billion in 2023. Now while the decline was better than what the country saw in 2022, the 5.7% drop in births are creating concern. A cold snap in Ukraine didn't impact winter crops. That's according to government scientists assessing the crops. Ukraine's National Agrarian Academy says even with recent frost, there was no negative impact on the wintering of winter crops. The scientist calls Ukraine's crops in satisfactory condition. Ukraine grows winter wheat, winter barley, and winter rice. And Mexico could be the next big destination for U.S. lamb demand. Building demand for high-quality protein, including U.S. lamb, was the mission of a recent U.S. Meat Export Federation trip to Mexico. USMEF, along with the American Lamb Board and USDA Market Access Program, hosted an event on Mexico's Pacific Coast. It brought together suppliers and buyers from across Mexico, along with chefs and influencers, all to grow hunger for U.S. lamb, an area that USMEF says has the greatest growth potential. You know, many of these distributors either weren't familiar with American lamb or they hadn't really considered it. Um, but after, you know, after our discussions and, you know, talking about our products and seeing the quality of it and uh, understanding more about uh, what their needs are and what our capabilities are, um, you know, we see there's a, you know, certainly an opportunity for growth, um, you, know, th you know, throughout Mexico, you know, with American lamb. Pfeiffer says the distributors they talked to either weren't familiar with American lamb or haven't even considered it. An outbreak of any foreign animal disease here in the U.S. would be devastating. That's why there are several exercises being done to prepare. But the solution isn't just complicated, it's emotional. We'll tell you why in Chip's Corner next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Chip's Corner. Chip, what good stuff do you have for us this week? You know, there's been a lot of talk about a proposal from USDA to reopen the U.S. market to fresh chilled beef from Paraguay. Uh, the big concern here and, and the question marks uh, are about this situation range from is this a protectionist issue or is this an animal disease issue? And the reason that I say that is because it doesn't matter which livestock group we talk with, which cattle group we talk with, everybody is opposed to the idea of reopening the U.S. Uh, market to be from Paraguay. Now, 
the decision-making process that USDA has gone through on this, as we understand it, the last time that USDA had people on the ground in Paraguay assessing the situation was nearly 10 years ago, Tyne, wow. nearly 10 years ago. We talked with a U.S. representative, uh, Frank Lucas, out of Oklahoma last week on the show, and he he's, he's all for free trade. He's proven that over the years that that Congressman Lucas is is about free trade. But he is dead set against opening up the U.S. market to be from Paraguay until we put people back on the ground, reassess that situation down in Paraguay and make them prove that they are clean and free of foot and mouth disease before we start to import beef from Paraguay again. Yeah. And the risks, Chip, they seem oh. to be pr pretty high. And I know he talked about that on the show. It's industry-wide. Industry-wide. It doesn't matter if if we are talking about the livestock producers. It doesn't matter if we are talking about the guy that delivers fuel to a farm that was found to have foot and mouth disease. It, it, it runs all through rural America if that disease would get back into the country. Now, and if you want to talk about the real risk, I think uh, Representative Lucas did a fine job of summing it up. I'm not sure how a rancher is going to react when you're telling him that maybe a 100 or 150-year line of cattle has to be it's destroyed be immediately. Right. The right. psychological, if you think people care about their dogs and cats, yep. think about the prize beef bulls and brood cows that yep. have taken generations and for genetic uh, perfection to be achieved. So so we are talking about a century's worth of risk on this time. It, it listen, I'm a I'm a free trader as well, but I want that to be safe trade. And in this case, I'm not convinced that it's safe trade to be bringing in beef from Paraguay. Wow, I hadn't even thought about that. And I know on the show he was talking about, you know, you can vaccinate animals, but even those that are vaccinated or not vaccinated, you have to cull some of those animals to get rid of the host if a foreign animal disease would come into the U.S. And that's exactly what he's talking about right there. I mean, yes. you are talking about a century of genetics there that could be lost if a foreign animal disease came into the U.S. Jeff, I guess I just hadn't thought about it that way. That's right. How would you like to be that rancher if that happens? Mm. Gosh. All right. The risks are definitely high. Chip, thank you so much. We appreciate you, you joining us. Don't forget, you can check out AgriTalk AM, 10 AM Central, AgriTalk PM, 2 PM Central, or you can check out Chip's show anytime at agritalk.com. All right. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. The soybean processing industry is exploding, which means new opportunities for farmers domestically and in international markets. While whole soybeans have been the main export focus for farmers in the Northwest Corn Belt to China through the Pacific Northwest, the Port of Grays Harbor has specialized in soybean meal. And as Michelle Rook reports, that port will be even more important in the near future. Major infrastructure investments being made here at the Port of Grays Harbor in Aberdeen, Washington will help improve the efficiency of moving product and help expand soybean meal exports. Additional export markets are needed for U.S. meal as it will soon become a byproduct of soybean processing as new plants come online to meet the growing demand for soybean oil for use in renewable fuels. We're looking at roughly a 30% expansion, maybe a shade higher than that 
in crushing capacity within the United States. That is, we've not had a wave of expansion like this, of this magnitude, I think, at, at any point. That's also driving the current expansion and investment at the Port of Grace Harbor with soy processor AGP. AGP's worked on a, a new uh, shiploader and dump buildings. We're making uh, enhancements to the dock by adding fender systems and a new stormwater system to ensure that the run of stormwater runoff is uh, not going to harm any of our fish in, in our environment here. The port has also invested in dredging and the third addition to the rail line since 2000. We're going to add another 50,000 feet of rail on dock rail and it will probably be in the 30 to 35 million. The United Soybean Board and soybean producer groups in the Northwestern Corn Belt have also contributed to infrastructure feasibility studies to aid the project. We've helped to bring the engineering and the planning and all of that up as far as uh, Port of Grays rebuilding and improving their facility. And that will greatly enhance port capacity and ramp up exports of meal to Southeast Asian customers. It'll basically double it. It'll, it'll go from two and a half to three million to probably six plus million uh, on an annual basis. Having a channel for an additional three million tons is absolutely critical for ensuring that we have connectivity between our production and supply side of the market and our buyers overseas. Construction is currently underway with the target for completion in early 2025, and this project will pay big dividends for farmers. As we have uh, increased economies of scale for export and improved infrastructure for bringing soy to elevators and soy meal from the elevator to the port, investment towards that all means dollars back in farmers' pockets. When you have more efficient transportation, you don't have the same hit that you take on basis. Even for me, I'm from the state of Maryland, and it's going to help my basis just as well because the market is a world market. It's not just a local market anymore. Burrier says investments in not only Grace Harbor, but other infrastructure projects are critical as the U.S. grain transportation system is aging. It helps us to be more reliable on air infrastructure moving the soybeans from the farm down to the final customer. Which keeps U.S. farmers more competitive globally. I'm Michelle Brooke for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, there's no doubt it is cold. So how would you like to have cows calving in it? Well, we're heading to the coldest part of the country next. There's a meme going around social media the past couple of weeks saying anyone who has livestock, do not talk to them right now because they're probably in a bad mood. From all the snow to the bitter cold, it's been a challenge across many areas of the country, especially for those calving in the cold. Last week, it was we, we had actual temperature of 45 below, which was a record uh, here in Dillon, Montana. And luckily, we had no wind. It would have been, I mean, it would have been devastating if we'd had wind with that. Jim Setz of Setz Angus says their operation has been here for over 100 years, and they've seen it all. But negative 45 degrees set a new record for their area, cold that created one challenge after another. You know, the weather is one challenge, you know, and, and it's just hard on people. It's hard on livestock. It's hard on machinery. But then we're also calving right now also. So, um, you know, luckily we're just in the beginning stages of calving. Setz says it wasn't just how cold it got last year that made it worse or even the amount of snow but instead it was battling those extremes for four months straight. 
if you didn't have facilities last year, I know a lot of these commercial guys, I mean, in our, in our part of the country lost 15 to 25% of their calf crop just through, through the weather. While other producers in parts of Montana dealt with heavy snow late this week, Set says in southwest Montana, they got a little relief, seeing a couple days above 30 degrees. Like last year where it, it continued. Yeah. I mean, we, had, we had basically four months of horrible weather, you know, and it just never gave us a break last year. Knowing the winter can bring such extremes, why even calve in the middle of winter? Set says as a seed stock operation, they need to calve early so their bulls are mature enough for breeding the following year. For the people that do calve early, there you know typically there are reasons why they why they have to, um, you know. But a lot of it is just, they just have to be bred before they go up on 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 summer units and whatnot in our part of the country. He says thanks to a remarkable crew, they were able to save all the calves that came at the height of the cold. And now in the calm after the storm, it's a reminder to enjoy the endless natural beauty of the prairies across the Great Plains. The good news. Warmer days are ahead. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.